0: Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more, with students enrolling from all over the world. You can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writercentre.com.au.
1: Hello, everyone,
2: and welcome to episode 58 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Alison?
0: I'm extremely well. I've had Procrasti Pop out for his morning walk and his little bit of love session. He does like Aww. to try and find friends everywhere we go, so that's always highly entertaining. Um, so I'm now, I've am now i done my walk, which is always good, and now I'm, I'm ready to go, Val. I'm sitting at my desk and I'm ready to go. And Wonderful. Um,
2: I am ready to go too. I've been in Melbourne recently, so oh. I went to, you know, the Australian Writers Centre campus down there, and it's also gorgeous because it's in this, you know, beautiful convent at the Abbot's mm, convent, yeah. old convent. Uh, and it's just great just to wander around and to, you know, absorb the atmosphere. Very creative. <clears throat> but I also caught up with my friend Gina, who I do my other podcast with. She, she thinks oh, that you and her... You cheat,
0: you cheat on what? me, what you <laughs>
2: That's not how she puts it. She says, oh, she, Alison's like my sister-in-law. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's, it's like we're in one of those polyamorous relationships, isn't it? Yes.
2: So, for those <laughs> of sister you who wives. <laughs> sister wives, wives, yeah. For those of you who don't know, uh, Gina and I do a podcast called "So You Want to Be a Photographer." But uh, what have you been up to, Al?
0: Well, do you know what? I'm a little bit excited today because I received an email this morning uh, before I went for my walk, even mm. that um, the news is that my Sydney Writers Festival workshop about writing with children, mm. um, as in with having a family and actually getting the words down, is sold out. Yay! It's just very exciting news. I'm I'm, I'm so looking forward. I know. I'm sort of hoping that some of our listeners are coming along so I can meet them, which will be awesome. Yeah. Um, but I'm also looking forward to um, I'm, I've a got a couple of things on at the Sydney Writers Festival. I'm also looking forward to my panel on social media for authors at Science House on the 21st of May. And as you can imagine, I have just one or two things to say on that subject. Mm. And um, I'm also, and the boys are very excited about this, I'm going to be at Family Day, which is the big day for kids, um, on the 24th of May. And I'll be doing a reading and some various things, but I'm on the same bill as Andy Griffiths and Belinda Morrell, and it's so exciting. The boys are beside themselves.
2: Wow. So
0: excited, yeah. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Big day.
2: And if any listeners are listening to this episode in the future, this is 2015,
0: just so
1: you know.
2: (laughs) But I think that that's really interesting that, um, you know, uh, it's great that your workshop is sold out, but obviously it's a problem that so many writers, obviously especially women, uh, are facing when you're writing around these – well, yes.
0: mm. and given the massive response to our interview last week with Rachel Power mm. um the author of Creativity and Motherhood, The Divided Heart, Mm. uh, I would say that it has definitely struck a chord with lots of people. Mm. And so I'd just also like to say a big thanks to Sarah and to Libby, who have both sent um, emails uh, regarding their response to that particular interview. And I completely agree with you. And I'm so glad that I was able to help ease the guilt a little bit. Mm. That's all.
2: let's move on to our uh, news and links this week. I thought I would start off with a link and it's called, it's, it's from the Chronicle of Higher Education. And the post is called Apostrophe Where Is Thy Comma? And it's all about the vocative comma. So a lot of people. You okay.
0: Know... <laughs> <laughs> I love it when you go off into grammar nerd territory. It's awesome. <laughs> well, what because. Is a vocative comma. comma?
2: It, you know, someone said to me the other day, I noticed that in some of your emails, you say, dear John or, you know, dear Jane mm-hmm. or whatever, and you don't put a comma after it. And certainly when oh. I grew up, I was told to put a. Comma after it. In fact, often these days I don't put dear, which I think is a little bit old fashioned. I say hi or um, I just say the name. And certainly in emails, I I don't put a comma after it because I think it's old fashioned. And the general convention these days, compared to 20 years ago, is when you write letters even, is to omit the comma. But the vocative comma is a little bit different because grammar and punctuation purists will say it should actually be high comma Jane comma, mm. which is what they believe to be, you know, the, the true reflection of how punctuation should work in that instance. And many old fashioned people still do high comma Jane comma, but that just looks weird to me.
0: Well, I think that given that, you know, we teach kids in schools, like if my boys come home from school, I've got one in third grade at the moment and we have a little, that, like they've sort of been learning, obviously the third grader particularly just recently, not, not so long ago about, you know, the use of commas and stuff. And, you know, they've told to put a comma in where you think you need to take a breath, like a, just a, even a tiny breath, like it's not a full stop kind of deep breath, it's a mm. little boy breath. Nobody needs to take a breath after hi, <laughs> jane. But you just don't need that there. That's not, not necessary. But I find some of the other, other uh, examples interesting because um, having just sort of been through the copy edit and the proofreading on three books, mm. uh, three published books, um, the, they give the example of I know your sister Sally versus I know your sister comma Sally. Mm. And I can tell you that those commas go in. If you leave them out those commas go in during the copy edit or the proofread. Yeah, right. Um, So I, because I in the past would have just, you know, I know your sister Sally, Mm. but now as a matter of course, because I know the style of those particular publications and the style of the people editing them, I put the commas in.
2: But it depends on the meaning of the sentence, you know, like let's eat grandpa versus let's eat grandpa, comma, grandpa. So, yeah, it depends on the meaning of the sentence, doesn't it? Yes.
0: Yeah, it does in a lot of cases, but often if you are doing a uh more commas go into my work than come out of my work when really? I when when the editors are publishing them. Yeah. They're putting they, more commas in.
2: I think people are either comma, you know, are, are, you know, too positive with their commas or too negative with their commas. Because <laughs> I used to I used to edit a journalist who I swear to god I would be crossing out 50% of her commas cuz she just was comma mad. And she oh. would just put commas everywhere, even and when she, you don't take a breath.
0: Like then you're getting into the whole. You know, we we don't need to get into the Oxford comma debate, do we? Because no. that would yeah. Let's not go there. But you know, that's that's another. You know, you're either for it or you're against it, aren't you? Mm-mm. How could how could a punctuation mark be so divisive? That's what well,
2: that's maybe we <laughs> just need to get a life. Maybe we do. <laughs> Let's, maybe we do. Or we can just move on to our next link, which is from the Co-Schedule blog, and it's how to write blog posts even when you don't want to. Now, my question to you is actually: Do you write blog posts even when you don't want to?
0: That's a really interesting question because I've been sitting here today thinking to myself, I really need to write a blog post mm-hmm. because I haven't put one on my blog for at least a week, mm-hmm. um, which is unusual for me. Uh, so, yes, I do write them even when I don't want to mm-hmm. because I think that consistency in blogging is really important, she says, having not written for a week. <laughs> um but I do believe, yeah, you know, do as I say, not as I do, people. Consistency in blogging is important. So, yeah, I, I think sometimes that you do have to knock out a blog post when you really don't feel like it. Mm. Um, but I have to do a lot of that kind of writing in my life. From yes. Time time, I'm kind of used to it, you know. I'm, I've got often got to write a thousand words when I don't really want to. So, yeah. you know, I think, you know, the more you practice that, the better you get at it. Um, but what do they have to say in the post about how to write a good blog post when you don't really want to? Um,
2: um, I didn't really care. You didn't even read it. No, it was more, it was more something that uh, spurred a you know, thought with me as to whether I even do that. And I realised that I don't really do that. Even oh. though, like you, I have in, in that situation many times when I have to knock out a thousand words when I don't really feel like it and I'd rather be watching Real Housewives of Melbourne. So I, I, I know that I can do that. And I, because I do that so frequently... I just don't feel like, if I don't feel like writing a blog post, I just don't.
0: Oh, so, really?
2: yeah, I, even well, so, I Yeah. Even though I agree that consistency is important, I guess what I try to do is I make myself want to.
0: <laughs> well, I find it interesting too, because this is actually quite a good, like, it, I mean, you know, like, the, it's quite a technical post. I'm reading the post because that's the kind of girl I am, <laughs> Valerie. <laughs> Um, but my, I I would have to say that my one, my one main tool and my one main piece of advice on how to write a good blog post when you don't really want to, or how to write anything when you don't really want to is, uh, just to start writing Mm. because I often find, um, the most difficult thing about writing when you don't want to is just cranking out your first sentence because once you get started, then you just keep going. Yes. So it's getting started that's the massive issue. And if you don't start, then you're not going to do it. So I, my, my one piece of advice would be start writing something and then see what happens. It's
2: true. But when you are writing out a thousand words, you know the topic of what you've got to write for when you're writing mm. an article for something. But if you've got no idea what this blog post is going to be, that's very hard to start writing.
0: Well, I, well, I'll give you an example. Last okay. week I wrote a blog post that we're actually going to talk about a bit later and I started it because I thought I haven't done a blog post for a while. Oh, funnily, there seems to be some consistency in that. <laughs> um, I hadn't written one for a, little, for a little while, so I thought I'd better write one. And so I started and I wrote a great, like honestly, I was really pleased with what turned out and I didn't right. know what it was going to be before I began, mm-hmm. but then it turned out to be something that I actually thought, yeah, this, this makes perfect sense. Why didn't I do this before?
2: All right. Well, speaking of um, you know, writing and uh, getting away, and well, we weren't talking about getting away, but oh, that's
0: good. you know, it's always in the back of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly when you talk about you know our co- our conversation with Rachel Power last week about oh, mothers and yes. creativity, getting away is always in the back of my mind.
2: So you have a link about the Bundanon residency.
0: I do, and I have to say, I'm so excited about this. So Bundanon Trust is a fantastic. Uh, it's a, it's a site and it's actually not that far up the road from me down here on the South coast. Mm-hmm. Um, the property is a gift that Arthur Boyd gave to the Australian people. It's on the banks of the Shoalhaven river and it is absolutely phenomenal. It is so beautiful there. And the very exciting thing is that they invite artists to apply for residencies Mm -hmm. to go and stay there. And you can be there from a week up to six weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can, you go and you basically stay at this beautiful isolated property and you just do your thing, whatever your thing may be. Obviously, um, in our case, it would be writing, but they have musicians and they have, um, uh, you know, uh, visual artists, and they have all sorts of things there. And they've just opened their program for applications for residencies um, for 2016. So right. residencies are open now. They applications close on Monday, the sixth of July, 2015. Mm. But um, I will put the link in the show notes, and I really. Like recommend that if you're interested in really applying yourself to your project for a certain amount of time, then the Artist-in-Residence program at Bundanon would be just, I mean, honestly, I mean, it's only up the road for me and I'm still thinking about going. Yeah, and fantastic.
2: For, for writers, you only need to submit 10 pages of written yep. material, so that's right. everyone's got 10 pages.
0: Yeah, surely. Come yes. on, you can do it
2: do it moving on to something completely different about author platforms
0: oh yes um so i came across a great little um and i say great uh, you know notwithstanding the fact that i'm i'm actually in this post i didn't write this <laughs> post <laughs> i'm in it um so often i get asked you know we talk a lot about the author platform and we talk about how important it is and all that sort of stuff and then um people will say to me yes but what is it what is an author platform what does it look like?" Well. Um, Nicole at Active Patients has put together 10 author platform examples and they mm. are 10 examples of different ways that people go about putting their author platform together. Um, and there are some great big names in this. there's Jane Friedman, Joanna Penn, who of course has the Creative Penn website, which is a massive resource for self-publishing people. Um, Michael Hyatt, Elaine de Botton, Sophie Kinsella, all quite different people. Stephen Pressfield. E. Stephen Pressfield. You're in the company
2: of Stephen Pressfield and E.L. James.
0: I know. Mm-hmm. It's like it's a fairly diverse crew in there, isn't it's it? It's great. Um, so I think that if you are interested in trying to get an idea of different ways to go about putting your platform together, your website, your your Twitter presence, all the different things that um, that make up an author platform, have a look at this website because it gives you 10 very different examples um, and might give you an idea of where to where to start.
2: And you do such an amazing, amazing job of building your author platform that obviously, uh, you know, the person who has put this together on Active Patients has put you into this amazing company. I'm kind of
0: astounded to be there, but I'm pretty, I'll I'll take it. I'm pretty happy.
2: (laughs) I know. So I think that this is an appropriate time to let listeners know that you will be doing a course very soon in how to build your author platform. So
0: it's not ready yet, but stay tuned to this podcast. Yes. (laughs) Stay tuned. Everyone, I will be more consistent with that than I am with my blogging at the moment.
2: <laughs> Let's move on to a question, actually, that Libby emailed us this week. And if anyone would like a question answered, please do email us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au. But Libby has said, you talked about whether it is necessary to have a completed manuscript before approaching a publisher, as in a fiction manuscript. Mm. And the consensus was yes. But... It's not yes for non-fiction. And she said, I'd love to hear you elaborate on that. So that's a really good question, Libby, because we do say that with fiction, you pretty much do need the whole thing written, not just written, but rewritten and revised and workshoped and written again before you send it off. But with non-fiction, particularly with how-to books or business books or that sort of thing, you do need, uh, you do certainly need a synopsis and you certainly need at least three chapters written and you certainly need a chapter outline which means kind of like you know the name of each chapter and one or two paragraphs describing what the chapter is going to be about so at minimum you need that at least three chapters written they don't necessarily have to be the first three chapters but usually they are but they could be any three chapters from the book and that chapter outline and a very clear synopsis on what your book is about and and that is what you would at minimum send a a publisher what do, do you think Al?
0: Yes, um, yeah. Like, so I think you, you basically need to be able to, the publisher needs to see the overall structure of the book, how, how your narrative or how your nonfiction is going to run because you've got to remember that even if you're doing a how-to book, there still needs to be a thread that runs through it from start to finish. It's got to, there's got to be a narrative mm. to it. They need to be able to see what that's going to be. The other thing I tend to include in my nonfiction proposals is what I think is similar in the market and why my book is different. Um, I think it's important to sort of like, because you, you need to show them that you've thought about who the market for your book is, who your target audience is, um, why your book is different and why you're the person to write the book. Like what you're like, Absolutely. Why, why would they choose you to write this idea? You know, yes. because you've got yes. to remember that a lot of the ideas that you're putting together for nonfiction, fiction have probably been done before. They're a little bit like features Mm. articles, you know, like there's a lot of ideas out there that have probably been done before. But what you bring to it as you, the person, you, the writer, is your angle on that subject, your idea. Um, And so you need to be able to convince them that you're going to be able to um, put that together in a cohesive fashion.
2: Yeah, so it's essentially a book proposal where you sell yourself.
0: Yeah, that's right. The difference you sell though, yourself and your idea.
2: Yeah, non fiction also includes memoir, however. So Libby, mm-hmm. we're not sure if you are referring to memoir. And if you are talking about memoir, like, you know, you've gone through a harrowing experience in life and you want to write about that, that's different to writing a non fiction how to book or business book or, you know, self help book. So with memoir, it's a little bit more like fiction. You do kind of need most of it written before, Mm. before you submit that. So hopefully that helps you answer that question. Well, it's
0: also like, uh, from my perspective too, if you're putting together this, if this is the first book you've ever put together and it's the first time you've ever attempted a work of 80,000 words or however many words, your memoir Mm. or, you know, narrative nonfiction or whatever it is that you're doing is going to be, um, I would I would write the whole thing just to be absolutely sure yes. that, I want, that I was going to get there, A. And B, sometimes True. with memoir, the most difficult thing, and we've talked about this in an earlier podcast, and I don't remember when, but I know we talked to someone about this, mm-hmm. um, about the fact that with memoir, sometimes it's as much about what you leave out as it is about what you put in. Mm-hmm. So you've almost got to, you've got to at least get your draft down so that you can start to see where your story is. I I think yeah
2: absolutely but yeah yeah. if if it is your first go at it definitely once you've written say two or three memoirs like Paddy Miller you Mm. don't you don't have to write the whole thing because obviously the publisher knows you're going to deliver yeah that's right but let us move on to our writer in residence this week
0: let's do that and who have you got for us this week
2: Our writer in residence is the absolutely wonderful and gorgeous Pamela Hart. Now, many people may know her as Pamela Freeman. Uh, And Pamela Freeman has written, oh gosh, like 30 books or 29 books or something like, you know, prolific like that. And she's also a... Presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre, and she teaches creative writing and novel writing. She's well-known for her adult series, The Castings Trilogy, but she's also written picture books and junior novels like Victor's Quest and The Black Dress, which has won many awards. But under the name of Pamela Hart, she's written historical fiction, and it's a beautiful novel called The Soldier's Wife. And I have to say, Al... I get a bit nervous when I read. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Why are you laughing? I know what you're going to say.
2: This a- applies to you too. I when know. When I read the books of friends. <laughs> I know.
0: It's, it's a, it's, it's a horrible oh, responsibility. It's really stressful. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, what if I don't? Why? I mean? know.
2: Not just that. Like, you, 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 I get nervous reading the books of friends and, you know, people who I respect a lot. And... Pamela certainly falls into that category. Mm. You certainly fall into the category. You know, quite a few people fall into that category. And I just, it's, it's, it's quite a stressful time for me to, to read it because I, I read it and I go to the first page. It takes me a while to relax. Um, uh, but I have to say that not only did this not disappoint, it exceeded expectations. So oh, I love it's that. Just beautiful. So um, let's hear from Pamela Hart. Pamela Hart is a pen name for acclaimed author Pamela Freeman. Under Pamela Hart, she has written The Soldier's Wife, a compelling story set in Sydney in 1915. While this is her first foray into historical fiction, she is on her 30th book. She is an award-winning writer of children's books and fantasy and has previously published The Black Dress, which won the New South Wales Premier's History Prize and is now in its third edition. She is also the author behind the Castings Trilogy, and her Aurelius Award-winning novel, Ember and Ash. She is Creative Writing Director at the Australian Writers' Centre. Thanks so much for joining us today, Pamela.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure, Val.
2: I'm so excited to do this interview with you. Uh, For listeners who may not be familiar with your latest book, The Soldier's Wife, please tell them about it first. Well, The Soldier's Wife is an historical novel set
1: in Sydney during World War I. Um, and it's, it doesn't go to the battlefields. It concentrates on the lives of the people who stayed home. Um, and The Soldier's Wife of the title, uh, her husband, the soldier, uh, his life is based quite a lot on my grandfather's war record in Gallipoli.
2: Mm. So where did this idea for the book come from? When did you start thinking, oh, I might write this book? Well,
1: People seem to assume that I did it because of the centenary of Anzac Day. But in fact, that that didn't even cross my mind. I was invited up to my son's school a couple of years ago um, because he was the only one in the class who had a direct link back to Gallipoli. So for Anzac Day, his teacher asked me if I could bring in my grandfather's medals to show the kids. And we have his medals and his dog tags, um, but we also have... Uh, some documents we have his his war record and his enlistment papers and we also have a copy of the telegrams that were sent to the family when he was wounded mm. and he was one of the very few people who was wounded in the retreat from gallipoli um almost at christmas 22nd of december mm. and i read the telegrams out to the kids and the first one says we regret to report private arthur freeman is wounded and the next one said regret to report private arthur freeman seriously ill mm. and the next one was dangerously ill and then still dangerously ill mm. and finally out of danger and I started to think what would it be like to be the person who got those telegrams mm. um, because just reading them aloud was it you know was terrible the kids were like oh god you know and I was thinking yes it would be horrible to be the person who got the telegrams. Um, but the person who got my grandfather's telegrams was his sister because he was an orphan. Right. And he put his um, age up to join the army. Mm. And um, so I thought it was more of a story if it was a wife, you yeah. know, somebody who was really in love with a person uh, who was wounded. Yeah. And that's really where it,
2: it started wow and so did you start writing the story knowing it was going to be a book or were you just sort of toying around this idea you know inspired by your grandfather's situation
1: no i actually think i started writing the book because the the story itself the the broad sweep of the story came quite quickly when i started thinking about it and i should say here that i'd done quite a lot of research into australian history for other books that i'd written um and so I had background. I didn't have the, the other books finished in 1909. So I had six years to fill in. Mm. And I knew a reasonable amount about World War One, but not the details of what it was like to be at home because all the all the texts, all the books are about the battlefields. Um, but I knew it was a book right from the beginning. Mm. And it was very scary because I hadn't really written anything like that before. It was a change of genre, change of audience. Um mm. So it was, it was a very scary book to write. Yeah. yeah.
2: So following on from that, I mean, I have known you now for 10 years. Yeah. But I've always known you as Pamela Freeman. So but, can you tell us why you are writing as Pamela Hart for this okay. book?
1: Well, The Soldier's Wife is being published by Hachette Australia and they are also the publishers of my adult fantasy novels. And they are published under Pamela Freeman and when they went Uh, tried to sell these into the bookshops, they did quite well, but they did find that booksellers really thought of me as a children's writer. Mm. Um, This is my 28th book, Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, 25, sorry, 24 of those were for kids. So um, the booksellers really thought of me as a kids writer. Mm. And when because this was such a new genre and it wasn't likely I would be taking very many readers across with me from fantasy, they decided they would rebrand me. Mm -hmm. And Heart is my married name, which I've never used. I've always been Pamela Freeman up till now. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother-in-law's very excited.
2: I bet. (laughs) (laughs) So you said that the story came to you quite easily when, and quite quickly when you started thinking about it. Did you know most of the plot before you started? Did you know the end, how it was going to end? Or were there elements that you needed to figure out as you went along? I had no idea how it was going to end mm. up until it ended. Wow. Um, which is very
1: different from the way I usually write, which is another reason it was a scary book to write. Yeah, uh, right. I did know that the basic principle was that Jimmy, who is the soldier – um, he would be away for the first part of the book in Gallipoli and that his wife, Ruby, would be changing during that period because 1915 was a period of very rapid change. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the ways to show that is just to look at the fashions of the day. So for thousands of years, women had worn skirts down to the ground and in the space of a year, they were showing their ankles for the first time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you think about it in those t- terms, you know, thousands of years of women wearing long dresses and suddenly, in Euro- in European culture I'm talking about here, yeah. um, suddenly, suddenly ankles and even calves were being shown off. Yeah. Um, and that kind of big shift happened very quickly after the war began. Um, and things like the price of bread doubled in 1915. Well, there are things that people, you know, have no idea about, like, there were food riots in Melbourne during the war Mm. because prices of staples went up so much. Um, So it was a period of very rapid change and I knew that my female character would be changing with it. And then I knew he'd be wounded and he'd come home and they'd have to cope with that change.
2: So obviously you had to do a lot of research for this book. Can you tell us what kind of research you had to do to ensure your story was authentic and how did you go about it? Cause when you research, you could go down so many rabbit holes. How do you determine what to research in the first place?
1: Well, research is pretty addictive. Yes. Um, obviously I, I had done a lot of research for my earlier books, um, but the big issue was what people at the home front, at home, what did they know about what was happening? We know all about Gallipoli because we've grown up with it. Mm. But, um, you know, there was no TV nightly news mm. and it took a long time for stories to get uh, cabled across to Australia, well, out of Gallipoli in the first place and then across to Australia. And, of course, they didn't call it Gallipoli. That was another yes, – yeah, they, right. they called it ANZAC, mm. ANZAC and Suvia. And um, it, it's not too quite late that it's called ANZAC Cove even. So what I needed to know was how did contemporary people talk and think about the war? And mm. the best resource for that is the newspapers
2: yes.
1: um, and the diaries, of course, and letters. Um The Australian War Memorial has a fantastic collection of letters and diaries, but um, the great research tool for anybody researching Australian history is Trove, which is the National Library of Australia's website, and they have digitised almost every newspaper in Australia going back to um, European settlement. And so, for example, the weather in the book is the weather. Mm. So I would look up every day, you know, every date, and when I had a new scene on a particular date, I would look up the weather and see what it was. Mm. Um, So that, and, you know, it's funny, but that's what people go, oh, that's a great piece of research. But actually, it made it a lot easier. Weather's one of those things that writers struggle with, you know, Mm. because you don't want to have the pathetic fallacy where when someone is sad, it's rainy. Um, But on the other hand, you've got to talk about it because, It's part of the way people live, and it affects well affects people quite strongly. So I quite like the fact that I could use actual weather. Mm. Um, but the, the newspapers were really important, and any time I figured found oh I need to know that almost always I could find it in the newspapers. How much things cost, mm. uh, um, you know how how much things were a yard because she does a lot of sewing. Mm. Um, uh, there was a great series of articles about how to put together um, good meals and they – like like a recipe sort of thing in the women's pages mm-hmm. of the Morning Herald, but they told you how much everything cost. Right. Um, so there was a lot of information like that about daily life in the newspapers. And when I couldn't find what I needed, I went to experts – so I got a lot of help from people like the Commonwealth Bank Archives and the Australian War Memorial Archives mm. um, and even some professors who'd done specific research into things like how much rent was at the time.
2: And you told them, I'm writing this book, can you yep. give me some advice so that, you know, I get it right? Is that right? That's right. And people
1: are very, very helpful.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, even people who it's not their job to be helpful, they're mm. helpful, you know. Mm. Um uh, they, people do want it to be right. If it's their area, they want you to present it correctly. And I've very rarely been turned down but with a request for information.
2: Yeah, yeah. So this, uh, the topic of war can be very harrowing. And obviously, uh, part of this book is based on the experiences of your grandfather. Mm. Um, was it difficult or emotional at times to write certain aspects of the book? It
1: was, but not because it was based on my grandfather.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I never knew him. He died before I was born, and he never talked much about his experiences. He was very involved. Um, he was a, a founding member of the RSL at Parramatta, and he was very involved with the kind of veterans affairs stuff, um, you know, getting help for people. Um, but he he didn't, as far as I can find out, he didn't talk about it much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more... Coming to grips with the fact that everybody was grieving. Oh, um, it. There are, uh, the the soldier of the soldier's wife Jimmy. He doesn't die, but uh, you know, doesn't die in the war. But um, but other people do who are in the book, and uh, a, some of the book is about dealing with that fallout of the grief of the people left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was quite difficult. Uh, to be honest,ly you know, t- to write about those sorts of things honestly is hard.
2: Mm. You mentioned that this is your twenty eighth book. Yeah, I, in a way,
1: it's my thirtieth, but the other two are children's picture books, and they're not coming out for a while. So, okay, I so wrote you... them before I wrote. Uh, the Soldier's
2: Wife, but because they, it takes time to illustrate things. Sure. So, okay, then your 30th book. Take us back 30 books ago <laughs> when you to when you became interested in writing in the first place. Is it something that mm-hmm. you wanted to do when you were little or you discovered later in life? How did that work?
1: Well, I, I didn't write when I was little, but I did decide I would wanted to be a writer when I was about 12, Mm-hmm. And I think that was the time when I realised that, that the books that I loved so much had actually been written by people, you know, <laughs> real actual people. Um, right. Possibly even in Australia, because of most of the books I read in those days were English. Yes. Um, so I wanted to be a writer, but um, I thought my life was just absolutely boring. <laughs> and, you know, I grew up in Sydney's western suburbs and I had a wonderful childhood in the sense of being very loved. And um, But, you know, having a wonderful childhood does seem you know, to the child to be boring, I think. Yes. yes. Um, only later on do you realise how lucky you were. Yes. Uh, so when I was 15, I decided I would wanted to work in television um, because I knew it was hard to make a living as a writer. And I thought, oh, well, I'll work in TV while I'm doing that, you know. Um, and and in the end, that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was working at a scriptwriter at ABC Kids um, when I first started to write stories for kids. Mm-hmm. So I was writing. I was a scriptwriter and researcher there, and I started uh, writing stories, which I I had done very little of. I'd done practice writing. I was a fan fiction writer, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, A lot of people who go into science fiction and fantasy writing, as I have done, were fan fiction writers to
2: start with. Mm.
1: And I, for one, don't think there's anything wrong with that.
2: What fan Um, fiction were you writing, Pamela? I
1: was writing Star Trek.
2: Okay. I was a bit of a Spock fan. Okay. When I was 15, you know.
1: Um, And I was writing poetry. Right. Um, And I realised in my 20s that I was never going to be better than a mediocre poet. Okay. Um... Uh, so in my late twenties, I started writing stories for kids along with scripts for them, mm-hmm. and um, and my first stories were published in the school magazine, New South Wales school magazine, and one of those stories was called Betany Sunflower, and it was about a princess and. Um, I was very interested in that character and the world she lived in, and so I wrote another story about her and another story about her. And eventually, those stories together became my first book, which was The Willow Tree's Daughter. Mm. And the funny thing is, I'm still writing about Bethany. I have a whole series mm-hmm. ongoing about Princess Bethany.
2: So, you've obviously written across many different genres. Do you have a preferred one, or if not a preferred one, then at least one that you find easier to write over another? Mm. Um,
1: If you count them up, I've written more fantasy books than anything else. Mm -hmm. But I have to say there's always been this strand of historical fiction coming through. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, fantasy novels, particularly epic fantasy novels like the Castings Trilogy, Mm. they're they're set usually in pre-industrial landscapes Mm. and societies. And so I did a huge amount of research about, you know, how do you make a bow... Um, how do you make glue out of fish scales? Uh, you know, the kinds of things that people did then. Um, and I was always as interested in that kind of research as I was in the fantasy element of it. Um, so I must say I am really enjoying writing historical fiction. So I'm in the middle of uh, a new book, um, The War Bride, and um, a whole different set of research about surf life-saving and boat building. And um, and I love the research, but I also love the sense of um, continuity with the past. Uh, this is Australia in the early 20th century, this book set in 1920. And like The Soldier's Wife, there's that sense of exploring where my family has come from, Mm. um, uh, where my society, my culture has come from, uh, and I'm really enjoying that.
2: So I expect historical fiction may be the go for some time yet. So tell me, when you, are, you, you need to do all of this research and you know that you need to find out you know, the price of bread or your, the, what rent is and whatever research that you need, do you actually determine that at the start and do this whole tonne of research and then start writing or do you write and research as you go or do you write and then fill in the research later?
1: Um, all three.
2: Really? <laughs> yeah.
1: So if there's big stuff... That I need to know about, um, then I will do the research first. So, um, for the soldier's wife, I needed to know about um, transport because uh, how long it takes for him to get to Gallipoli. Because there's a lot of letters involved, coming backwards and forwards. Mm. So I needed to know. I needed to know that, and I needed to know things like how did she get her money. As as he w- he allocated a certain proportion of his salary to her, how did she get that money? Mm. Um, and nobody knew. I had to. That's where I had to go to the Commonwealth Bank archives to find out. Mm. Um, so so there were big things that I knew were necessary to the plot, um, which I did prior to writing. Yeah. There were things that I did on the go, um, like the weather. You know, before I sat down to write a scene, I would just check that day's paper. Um, And then there were things where I would write in big capital letters CHECK uh, Mm. because I would just keep – it it wasn't that important how much a leg of lamb cost. I could find that out later, you know. Um, And so I would keep writing um, before – you know, right to the the end of the day scene and then go back and check or at the end of the, you know, there were, I have a thing where I do um, big capital Xs, two capital Xs anytime there's something missing and then at the end of a draft I'll go back and I'll just search for those double Xs and I'll fill those pieces in.
2: Mm. So... When you had that seed of the idea for the book and you decided, you know, and it came to you, the story came to you quite quickly, can you just give us some kind of idea of a timeline? Like when you, uh, from when you thought of the idea to how long you wrote for until you got a first draft and was it consistent almost, you know, full-time writing during that period or, or, mm-hmm. or in snatched periods yeah. of time? Just give give us an idea of
1: that. Sure. Well, um, I got the idea just after Anzac Day two years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's almost exactly two years to the day from when I got the idea to when the book is being published. Mm -hmm. That's very fast, Mm -hmm. okay, very fast. And it probably wouldn't have been that fast if it hadn't been for the anniversary coming Mm -hmm. up. It took me five months to get a first draft and that included a little bit of research at the beginning the book the first draft of the book I knew was not ready you know it it really wasn't ready to to show anybody and I I tidied some up there was one strand of the story I wasn't sure about and I knew that the beginning was a bit flat but I didn't know what to do about that and then I have beta readers my husband is my alpha reader Mm -hmm. Um, but then I have beta readers and because I've been in the industry for a long time I'm lucky enough to have beta readers who really know what they're doing Mm. and so I did and one of those by the way was a student of mine um, who's gone gone through the novel writing class and who I really respect her opinion about fiction Mm. and she was kind enough to do that for me and I incorporated some of their their comments and problems that they had with it because there's always problems there's always an issue mm. and then um when I was about two-thirds of the way through the first draft I rang my old editor at my publisher at um, Hachette because I didn't know how long it ought to be mm. not ever having written one of these books before I just wasn't sure and so I rang Benedict Foley at Hachette and said um how long should a historical novel be mm. and she said why? What have you got? Let me see it. <laughs> <laughs> So I was in a very fortunate position of having the mm. two who wanted to look at it straight up. And um, she looked at it and then said, no, it's not ready for me to take to acquisitions. Mm. Uh, and she and I had a long discussion, which was effectively a structural edit. And I went back and completely rewrote the second half of the book wow. and significantly changed one particular element in the first half, which made it a much better book as a consequence.
2: What was the most challenging thing about writing this book?
1: Being honest, the most challenging thing was falling in love with the main male character because I didn't. If, oh. you, write, if you write a love story, you've got to feel about that the character the way your your main character does. You know? yes. Otherwise you can't get that across. Right. And, and Jimmy was not the kind of person that I myself would have fallen in love with. Right, he's very different to my husband, yeah. and my husband's the only person I've ever been in love with. So yeah. you know, it, it's always a stretch for me. Right, uh, and and I had to work quite hard at that. Um, and really? and in the end, the way I managed it was to have him write another whole series of letters to her that he never posted because of the censor. Because during the war, of course, the censor read every bit of mail that came off the battlefront. Mm. And um, he did, there, a lot of men didn't write the letters they would have liked to have written. So he wrote them in a notebook. And I normally write, you know, I type everything hmm. straight onto the computer. But in this case, I curled myself up in the smallest space that I could with a tiny little notebook and a pencil, which is the way he would have written them. And I wrote those letters uh, as though I were him.
2: Wow. Um, method and, writing.
1: Method writing. <laughs> yeah. I, I had to do something. I had to do something to to really connect with him and that that was and it worked you know yeah. it worked I'm I'm quite happy with him as a character now um but yeah it was that was
2: the hardest thing what was the most rewarding thing a- apart from finishing it
1: <laughs> well i guess the reaction has been fantastic
2: yeah uh, you know
1: like Given that it's a new genre for me, and I didn't have a contract, you know, usually I have a contract when I write a book um, because I have ongoing relationships with my publishers, and I I put proposals to them, and you know, I get the contract on the base of the proposal. But I wrote this on spec, and in many ways, you know, I feel like this is my first novel. It's almost like starting again, um, and I'm just as excited about this one as I was about my first book. Uh, so I guess the fact that it's
2: getting published is the most
1: you know. It wouldn't surprise me if it hadn't.
2: Oh, of course it was going to get published. It's a fantastic book. So you're our director of the Creative Writing Faculty at the Australian Writer Centre, oh. and you know, I, I I hear a lot of comments from people I meet who say, "Oh, you know, I don't have a talent for writing," or "Do you think you, mm. I, I, you know, it's just not." I'm not born with it. Do you think creative writing can be learnt?
1: I think everybody has a book in them. Mm. But the people who are not real writers only have one, and it's usually their story, the memoir story, Mm. or something about their family or background or something, something that is really important to them. Mm -hmm. And those people who only have one book in them, those people need a lot of help, Mm -hmm. you know. if you have a i believe that if you have a story you really want to tell i can help you tell it we can help you tell it you know Mm -hmm. i think that um people get scared because they're not good at essays and they're not good at the long complicated sentences that got top marks for english when they were at high school but in fact a lot of what we, we do is unlearn people we we Teach people to not do the sort of writing that they did for English mm. because that's not the way you connect with a reader. And if people are prepared to be really honest and really brave and to take criticism and to adjust what they're doing on the basis of the criticism, yes, I believe that that we can help anybody to tell the story if they want to tell the story badly enough.
2: Wise words, wonderful. Well, I think that this is one of the best books I've read this year, Pamela, and I'm not just saying that because you're one of our teachers. It's, it's awesome. I, I have the uncorrected proof. However, I'm sure it's not very different is it, than the final no. version. No, uh, And I just think that, that, you know, people should just do themselves a favour and get a copy because it's just wonderful. Um, but have That's you got some... Fun. <laughs> no, it's 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 the truth. So, do you have some parting advice to some listeners? Because obviously, on this podcast, people are listening because they want to get into writing
0: okay.
2: uh, or they want to get published. Do you have some parting advice? If you had, if there was one piece of advice you could leave people with, what would that be?
1: Okay, um, I like Pat Farmer's advice, which is the number one reason your book will never be published is that you haven't written it. <laughs> If you, want to, if you want to be a writer, you have to write and you have to prioritise it. Uh, and people say, oh, I'd like to write a book if only I had time. If you are watching three hours of television a week, mm-hmm. you have time to write a book. Yes. You just have to give it priority.
2: Wonderful. Uh, sage advice from Pamela Freeman and, or Pamela Hart in this case. Yep. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, Pamela. My it's pleasure, Val.
0: So what did you think? Oh, fantastic. She is fantastic. Yeah, she is You fantastic. know, all the feedback, um, you know, that from her workshops and everything is always just like amazing. Mm. So, you know, I'm a fan. And we have
2: to apologize. There was some issues with Pamela's headset. So we know that the audio was a little bit wonky, but hopefully you could, you know, bear with that and, you know, look for the gold. So let's move on to our working writers tip. let's um,
0: do that. What have you got for us? Well, this stems a little bit from our conversation earlier about writing blog posts when you don't feel like it. Mm. Um, So I started writing a blog post when I didn't feel like it. And what I came up with was something deeply unsexy, (laughs) but absolutely essential if you want to be a freelance writer or a writer, well, from my perspective, a writer of any kind. Um, And it's something that you know, people don't necessarily associate with writing. They don't associate with freelancing because it's, you know, we think of freedom and spontaneity and waiting for the muse and Mm. doing all that stuff. Well, I am, I wrote a whole blog post about routines Mm. and how important routines are. Like they're not cool, but they are the only thing that gets the writing done. And so I just want to put a big shout out there for the routine and how important it is. Um, So I learned the value of routine very, very early in my freelancing career because I did exactly what I think everyone does when they start freelancing where, you know, I um, initially started freelancing um, after work. So I was working nine to five. I started freelancing and then I got to the point where I was able to work three days and freelance two days. So I had two days to myself And so I pretty much spent the first three or four months of my two days to myself, you know, faffing about in cafes, cleaning the oven, making sure I bake. I think I baked muffins, progressive baking. I did all of those things. And then I realized... That if I continue to do that, I was going to be really poor, (laughs) like essentially really, really poor. And also I I was at that point, I'd missed a couple of deadlines. I had a few all nighters, you know, it's just, this is not working for me. I need to show up. I need to get up. I need Mm. to get dressed and I need to get on with it. And that's, I guess, um, what I think people need to understand like if you are going to do this um if you're going to write around children Mm. you need a routine if you're going to write as a freelancer from your home all day you need a routine you need to be at your desk at a certain time you need to do this pretty much the same thing day in day out and that's how you get the writing done Mm. so as i said deeply unsexy (laughs) but that's my working writers tip get yourself a routine and it's really interesting you know because we we ran a terrific post on the Australian Writer Centre blog mm. called where 18 authors share their writing routines. Yes. And it's been one of the most popular yes. one of the most popular posts we've ever done <laughs> because they talk about all these people, they do different things, everybody does it differently, but everyone's got a way of getting around this procrastination problem that everyone can have. It's called writing when you don't feel like it. Yeah. And if you show up and you start then the muse tends to find a park and come with you.
2: Absolutely. Great mm. tip. Absolutely okay. great tip. Well, one of the most useful things when I first started freelancing that somebody said to me, Barry Devola, actually. Oh, I love Barry Devola. That's great. Is, um, he said, just whatever you do, get out of your pajamas first thing.
0: Yeah. So, it's, so, it's so true. Mm-hmm. It really is. It changes your whole outlook. Um, and I've got to say, Having a dog has helped me a great deal. Like it's only been in the last year. Well, I mean, I've got a routine anyway because, you know, I've got children and I'm up and I'm out and we go to school and we do all that stuff. So the last 12 years of my life, my routine has essentially been led by them Mm. and me working around them. Mm. But um, I get up and like I get out every morning for a walk, like a long walk now. How long? uh, It depends. Like anywhere between um, usually up to 45 minutes at least. Yeah. We go to school drop the boys, and then we continue.
2: Well, um, you must have good Fitbit stats.
0: Well, oh, God, don't talk about it because you know what happens. My battery's run down about a month ago and I haven't replaced it, so I'm wasting steps as we speak.
2: Oh, it's better than what I did because I did had the one do? that you clipped to your bra and I put that in the washing machine.
0: Oh. It you, need one of the, you might need to get one of those little attractive bracelet ones.
2: Yeah, not so attractive bracelet. I'm waiting for the iWatch. Oh, please.
0: <laughs> All right. You can talk to us about the iWatch when you get one.
2: Okay. All but right. anyway, that, becomes, that brings us to almost to the end of our podcast this week. So what are you going to be doing over the next week?
0: Well, I've got to. Um, I've got. I've got some school talks coming up, so I'll be out. You know, talking about writing and mm. inspiring writing in schools. I got the most amazing email the other day from um, a school that I had visited a couple of weeks ago, and it was just a note from the librarian, and she just said, "I just want to say thank you so much for coming to visit us. All the kids have wanted to do since you left was write, and um, this is a school that's um, probably where they've ch- you know." had some challenges in that area. Um, So that feedback was, I was just, I was so stoked. Um, So I'll be doing that. Um, But I just wanted to say thank you as well. I've got a thank you to send out. Um, I would just like to say thank you to everyone who has left a review for, for the Mapmaker Chronicles books one and two um, on Goodreads have written them on their blogs. have put them on Amazon. Um, I so appreciate it. It's so helpful to writers um, when you do leave a review. Mm. um, And it's just been like, I, I very much appreciate your support. Woohoo! Yay! Yay! What about you? What are you up to?
2: What am I up to? This week I'm hosting an event on uh, how technology is disrupting journalism in Sydney. We did the event in oh, Melbourne.
0: Yeah. How did that last go? week?
2: Yeah, great, really good panel. And the Sydney panel is is fantastic as well. Excellent. Um with people from you know Mashable and Junkie and Bower and you know a bunch of places. Wow. So it's uh it's gonna be good. I'm also juggling some talent. It's all you know, you yeah, know, sometimes
0: juggling talent. Yeah, That sounds painful.
2: So um, I'm interviewing somebody who is world famous Mm -hmm. and who is absolutely unique. There are probably only other 12 people in the world who have done what this person has done and some of them are already dead. Uh, So it's, it's, yeah, anyway, it's, it's a big deal, but he's flying into Sydney for 48 hours only and we had our interview time scheduled, but now he only wants to be in Sydney for 24 hours, <laughs> um. flying from up the other side of the world. Oh. And um, so we got a, it's a bit of a juggle to work out uh, whether we can actually find a window that we can meet. So
0: we'll see. What's the interview for? Uh,
2: for a glossy magazine. Ooh, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's, it may or may not occur if we can't find the window. No I don't want to window. I know.
0: Find a window. But anyway
2: that, thank you to everyone who's been listening and thank you for your reviews and ratings on iTunes. If you have 30 seconds to, rev, uh, to leave us a review or rating, we'd really appreciate it. It really helps us in the rankings. Thank you so much for those of you who've done it because it's kept us in the What's Hot section of iTunes and we just appreciate it more than you know. Mm. In the meantime, feel free to email us, podcast at We can find you, Al, on social media.
0: Where? You'll find me on Twitter at at al tate and you'll find me on facebook quite regularly at alison tate writer
2: And you'll find me at Valerie Koo on uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter as well. But also we're reminded everyone to sign up to the Australian Writers' Centre newsletter because apart from awesome resources, of course, it also has uh, some great competitions and giveaways. So you'll find that at...
0: And uh, and at an opportunity to win a $200 Booktopia gift voucher. Yes.
2: And yes, when you sign up, you have the opportunity to win a $200 Booktopia gift voucher, like what have you got to lose? So do that at au and uh, look for the newsletter sign up. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you next week.
0: Bye.